Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And my name is Johanna Mendelson Foreman. I'm a senior associate at the Center. And this is part of a series that we are pleased to bring you on Smart Power, based on a CSIS Commission on Smart Power. The report many of you have seen, but if you haven't, it's available on the CSIS website. And of course, we are here today because this series and the Smart Power Report talks about multilateralism and what it means. So it is an especially an honor to have with us today the Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping, Jean-Marie Gaheno, who came down from New York especially to be with us this afternoon. As we all know that in the wide gray area between war and peace, there is peacekeeping, and that peacekeeping is a way to help countries that have been torn by conflict and are in search of a sustainable peace. And since the first UN mission in 1948, UNSTO, which actually helped in the formation of the State of Israel, there have been 63 peacekeeping missions. Today, there are 17 missions around the world, of which 20 are peace operations. There are close to 100,000 military personnel, uniform personnel. The cost of these operations in 2008 is close to $7 billion. And one feature of the post-Cold War has been the exponential growth of peacekeeping around the world. And if, to compare, just to tell you, the budget of peacekeeping in 1993 was $3.6 billion. It's close, as I say, to $8 billion today. The CIS, CSIS Commission on S Smart Power noted that peacekeeping was one of the four areas in which the United Nations could help promote the global good and thus have a multiplier effect on our own security. And in fact, the UN peacekeeping deployments are the second largest security provider after the United States in the year 2008. But of course, smart power also recognizes that, that the United States has, in, that recognizes the important contribution of the UN and its ability to reach out to conflict countries and to help stabilize failing states and to ensure our own security. And in spite of this, the US support for this vital function and our financial commitments often fall short. And that's the dilemma we face today, and a dilemma which we hope that Undersecretary Gehano is going to address in remarks that he has for us. After his remarks, we will take questions, and unfortunately, we'll have to terminate the session at 2.15. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And I, I don't know if peacekeeping, because it combines the, the hard power of troops and hopefully the soft power of a political process that falls right in between what you call smart power. That's, we try to be smart, we are not always smart, but at least the, the whole idea is certainly to, to orchestrate the use of military force with the uh, resources of uh, economic development and with the strategy of a political process. That's at the heart of modern peacekeeping. You mentioned the, uh, the figures, the enormous growth uh, that we have witnessed in the last uh, few years. Uh, uh, I arrived at the time when the Brahimi panel report had just been uh, issued, and indeed peacekeeping was then a fraction of what it is today. Um, why that? Possibly a growing awareness that if we do not attend to a number of conflicts that undermine states, a vacuum can develop that is not only a humanitarian challenge that can become a strategic threat. Uh, and certainly what happened uh, in Afghanistan at the time of the Taliban is an illustration uh, of that. And so the, the greater commitment 
of the international community to peacekeeping in the last uh, eight years uh, shows that there's a greater recognition that there can be countries that nobody has uh, heard of in Europe or in the United States, but that cannot be ignored for reasons of moral principles and for reasons of strategic interests. And indeed, when I look at uh, where we are in a number of countries and where we were some years ago, I think that there has been real progress on a number of fronts. When you look at where most of West Africa was uh, in uh, 2000 and where it is now, it's much better. Uh, Sierra Leone had been uh, destroyed by a vicious uh, rebellion. Uh, Liberia had been destroyed by years of, uh, of conflict. Uh, in those two places, certainly it looks better. And Côte d'Ivoire, after a very difficult moment, is... In, a, in, a, in the midst of a political process that hopefully uh, will help turn the page of uh, conflict. When I look at the Great Lakes, I also uh, see, uh, although it's extremely uh, fragile, I also uh, see real progress. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, a few years ago, you couldn't go from uh, uh, east to west, west to east. It was a divided uh, country. Today, you can uh, travel all around the country. At the same time, there's still a lot of violence in the Kivus. There are still a uh, very dangerous situation in a number of parts of, uh, of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But certainly, after elections that everybody recognized as uh, uh, free <coughs> and fair in uh, one of the biggest countries of Africa, I mean, that's, that's a sea change compared to uh, what uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo was in 1999. Uh, and likewise uh, for Burundi, with all the, the fragility. And uh, I like to say that you can judge a peacekeeping success only 10, 15 years later. You can say now with confidence that Namibia, Mozambique, uh, Salvador, Cambodia, they were a real success. 10 years from now, we'll be able to, to judge uh, with a measure of certainty uh, where we have succeeded, where we haven't. So there has been some success, and there has been a rebirth of uh, peacekeeping after a period where the, the conventional wisdom that UN peacekeeping was essentially over after the, the disasters of the 90s, after Yugoslavia, after Somalia, after Rwanda. The conventional wisdom was there will be regional organization possibly doing peacekeeping, uh, but uh, with the United Nations, it's over. Why did it uh, turn out to be different? Probably because of some comparative advantages that the United Nations has. The most obvious one is the issue of legitimacy. And I am not uh, talking here as a kind of a stickler to uh, international law. I'm talking here as an, uh, an observer of conflicts. It's very difficult in any country to accept the presence of uh, foreigners. <coughs> Nobody wants foreigners to interfere with one's own affairs. Nobody uh, is happy if there's a sense that any national agenda could interfere uh, with uh, the future of a country. The advantage that the United Nations has brought to a number of conflicts is that simple notion that 
the UN does not pursue a particular national agenda. That is immaterial, but that is essential to the acceptance of the influence that is at the heart of a peacekeeping uh, political uh, process. The other two comparative advantages, it's, it's a simple fact that we have access to a pool of uh, resources that is the world, <laughs> that is 192 countries, although we don't have a 192 troop contributors, that'd be hard to, to manage actually. Uh, but we certainly have access to the broadest possible pool of, uh, of uh, countries when it comes to tapping uh, military resources around the world. And uh, there is a formula for burden sharing that also has its robustness and that, that helps. So I could uh, stop there and uh, tell you that everything is fine and uh, now the world is, uh, there are a few loose ends to be tied here or there, but uh, it's all over. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I think this is a time to have quite serious concerns. Uh, I think that first, we are, we are now 10 years away from the tragedies of the 90s. We learned some painful lessons. 10 years is too short a time to forget them. Uh, some painful but some basic uh, lessons. Uh, if you deploy a peacekeeping operation, you need to have a peace to keep. Now that may sound a little glib, and of course, we deploy in places where it's not a full peace uh, that to, to keep. When we deployed in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there was far from a full peace uh, to keep. Nevertheless, there was a critical mass of stakeholders who felt, who had uh, signed a, a peace agreement and who were ready for a political process. Uh, we eventually deployed a robust force, unfortunately not at the outset of the Congo mission, <clears throat> but we eventually deployed a robust force because we did not want the political process, the international community did not want the political process to be held hostage uh, by a few spoilers. You can't allow a militia here or there to stop a process that the vast majority of the population, the mass majority also of those who hold guns, uh, uh, would uh, want to go forward. And so for that, you need a robust force. But that is not saying that a robust force is going to coerce into a process people, movements, who are not uh, ready uh, for that uh, process. So robust peacekeeping, uh, yes, but robust peacekeeping on the basis of a solid uh, political foundation. That's what we learned the hard way in Yugoslavia. If you throw peacekeepers in the middle of a war, uh, you are uh, courting real trouble. And that's why we learned from those uh, 90s, from those tragedies of the 90s, the importance of having clear, credible, and achievable mandates. You can fudge an issue in the resolution of the Security Council, when the resources of the six official languages of the UN are great. Uh, so uh, in English, French, Chinese, Arabic, uh, Spanish, you can be, uh, you can be wonderful. Uh, but on the ground and Russian, you can, be, uh, you, you, can do a, uh, you can do a lot of clever things. But uh, when it comes to uh, 
the mission of a military force when it comes to a political strategy on the ground, acting on the basis of the fudge doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work for the military who want to know what their mission is. It doesn't work for a political strategy. If you don't know where you want to go, you will not go anywhere. And so this need for clarity is essential. The third lesson I think we learned from the 90s is the importance of cohesive political support of the membership. And that's linked to the previous point, in a way, because there is a fudge when there is disagreement uh, among the key stakeholders. Uh, you can have clarity if there is agreement. And uh, what we see is that in a post-conflict situation, if the parties to the conflict have a sense that different components of the international community are pulling in different directions, they will exploit it. They will use it. And so you're going to be at a very serious uh, disadvantage. And so the cohesiveness of the international community in, in its strategy uh, for addressing a post-conflict situation is essential. As is essential the consent and the cooperation of the key parties. And in a way, I'm saying in different ways always the same thing. That is a peacekeeping operation. It is there not to substitute for the absence of a political process. It is there to support a political process. And a political process is not something that can be coerced. A political process comes from the strategic choice made by the parties that it is in their best interest to have a third party, the United Nations, come to their help. Of course, they won't be agreed at all time on all things with the peacekeeping mission. And that's natural, because we will push, and we need to push. But if they, are, if they disagree at all times, or if they're reluctant at all times, we have a problem. Uh, and that's, I think, also a very important lesson. And the last lesson, and in a way I mentioned it last because it's the one most often mentioned and it's important, but in a way, because it's more visible, it's the material resources uh, and capabilities to undertake the mandated task. Of course, if we are given a very ambitious mandate and we don't have the capabilities, we are in trouble. But I mention it last because the political context in which those resources are provided matters uh, even uh, more. Today, we have challenges on all those fronts. I'll start with what I just mentioned, the material uh, resources. Uh, the international community is stretched, not just the United Nations. We know that this, I, know the, I know the discussion in the United States on the, the, the challenges uh, to the uh, uh, US uh, armed forces. We see the challenges in Europe. Uh, we see the challenges of the African Union. The gist of it is that peacekeeping is a labor-intensive activity. Yes, high-tech can help, drones can help, all sorts of things can help. But at the end of the day, you need to have a visible presence on the ground. You can't uh, do peacekeeping with virtual presence. You have to have uh, real persons patrolling in uh, remote places. 
And so numbers do matter. And today, uh, when you look at the whole of peacekeeping, you see that basically those resources are not quite there. And I've started with numbers, but the capacities are also missing. The whole international community, for instance, does not have the enablers uh, it needs. It took a long time for NATO to find uh, the helicopters it needed in Afghanistan. We haven't found the helicopters we need in uh, Darfur. Uh, we are missing critical uh, capabilities. And the governance arrangements of the United Nations, I said our comparative advantage is the universal pool of resources. That is a, that is a strong advantage. A disadvantage we have is that the governance arrangements of the United Nations, in a way, create a disconnect between those who decide, those who pay, those who take the risk. And that's a challenge that we face today at a high level of uh, peacekeeping activity. Let me be clear. Those who pay, they are essentially the United States, uh, which pays 27% of the bill. There's the European Union uh, member states, which pay roughly 40% of the bill. And there is Japan, which pays roughly 20% of the bill. Add all of that, you come to 87% of the bill for that group of countries. That's a lot. That means the rest of the world pays roughly 13% uh, of the bill. So great concentration uh, on, uh, uh, on a small number of countries for those who pay. Those who provide the troops, they are largely uh, South Asia and some African uh, countries and uh, some Latin Americans uh, essentially in, uh, in Haiti. Uh, there were almost no uh, Europeans uh, until the uh, deployment of the reinforced uh, UNIFIL in Lebanon. Uh, so there is a, there a great concentration on a small number of, uh, uh, of countries. Uh, and so those who take the risk for I mean, uh, uh, more and more challenging mandates are not those necessarily who pay, and they're not certainly those who take the decision. Those who take the decision, that's the Security Council. And the overlap of the Security Council with uh, those who pay is partial, with uh, Japan and Germany uh, uh, not uh, in the Council uh, presently. <coughs> and with those who, provide, who take the risks, also very partial, uh, with I mean, uh, South Asia essentially absent uh, for the moment of the Security uh, Council, certainly not. Uh, permanent uh, members. So that's, that's a weakness at a time when the international community, when the United Nations is asked to do uh, so much. By uh, stressing those challenges of the governance arrangement, in a way I'm transitioning to what is, for me, one of the most, um, maybe the, the most critical challenge, the political uh, challenge, the degree of support that peace operation need if they want to be uh, successful. I said uh, earlier that there's a tendency to focus on the material resources. The political fuel is as important, is actually even more important than the material resources. I mean, they're both essential. Uh, but the challenge that we face today as you noted, 20 missions, if we include the peace operation that are under the responsibility of the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, 
and the, and the peacekeeping uh, operation in the traditional uh, sense. 20 operations, 20 different uh, conflicts. Is there enough political will to address uh, today by a limited number of countries, those 15 countries which are sitting on the Security Council, especially in the, and the five permanent members among those 15, is there the will to address those 20 uh, uh, political uh, situations, those 20 political processes? Maybe there would be the will, but it's not the time. <laughs> uh, because there's not just peacekeeping. There is the non-proliferation. There is the... Uh, uh, the crisis in the Middle East. I mean, there are other issues which deserve certainly a lot of attention of uh, the international community. And uh, I'm not one uh, who thinks that peacekeeping is the only uh, issue uh, on the agenda of international uh, security. Can uh, the major powers focus on so many, so many issues at once? I doubt it. I don't think it's, uh, it's happening today. I don't think it's feasible and I think it's dangerous because, again, we tend to focus on the hardware, so to speak, and ignore the software. Uh, the troops that we provide, the, the window of security that we open with, a, with the deployment of a peace operation, it helps control the downside of a situation. It doesn't really build the upside the upside is the political engagement, is the development effort, is all that comes on top of the military uh, deployment. And so it's, if you limit the downside but you don't exploit it to really build the upside, eventually uh, you're not going to make the progress that you want to make. And uh, that is uh, what we are risking uh, uh, today. Uh, that is what we are risking today because of what I would call a political overstretch. Because also, let's be frank, there is an international community today that is much less united in its strategic goals than it was uh, at the end of the Cold War. And there was a window uh, that opened at the end of the Cold War that we considered as a new era. Uh, sometimes I wonder whether it was just actually what I said, a window. Uh, there has to be in the international community a common sense, a sense of common purpose uh, if one wants to achieve uh, uh, such ambitious goal as helping broken uh, countries to rebuild uh, themselves. Is that sense of common purpose present in all the missions where we are deployed? I don't think so. I'm concerned to see how issues like Kosovo, for instance, today are divisive for the international community, how the Security Council <coughs> cannot come together on an issue like Kosovo. And I mentioned Kosovo because it's, today it's the most prominent uh, among the issues which divide the Security Council, but I'm not sure that on other issues there's a deep unity sense of common purpose in the Security Council. So that is... Uh, a real challenge and a real threat to the effectiveness of uh, UN uh, peacekeeping. To address that challenge, uh, we all agree that we need to work as partners, that we need to bring more actors to the peacekeeping table. 
And we have seen in recent years organizations like, uh, like the African Union, like the European Union, like NATO, uh, like uh, the organization American States, contribute uh, to peacekeeping and get involved in peacekeeping. And that is welcome. I think it would be very foolish on the part of the United Nations uh, to think that it has to claim any monopoly on, uh, on peacekeeping. I think the more actors are, pre are prepared to contribute material and political resources uh, to peacekeeping, the better in the, general st in the state uh, where we are, where demand vastly outstrips uh, the resource and the supply. But I'm worried, again, because yes, we see more and more organization uh, getting uh, involved. But sometimes I wonder whether they are getting involved to benefit from their respective comparative advantages. Regional organizations may have a deeper knowledge of the regional situation than uh, the United Nations. Uh, this or that organization may have more, more resources when the, each has its own comparative advantage. But sometimes it looks as if this proliferation of uh, organization like surgeons, uh, busybody around uh, a very in a difficult uh, operation, whether they dilute responsibility rather than mobilize more resources. I wouldn't want uh, the multiplication of uh, organization working on... Uh, jointly uh, to, be, to lead to a situation where member states, which are the ultimate providers of the real resources, the material and the political, where member states would have more organizations to hide behind uh, rather than to really confront uh, their responsibilities. And sometimes I wonder whether there is a risk uh, of that. Uh, that is something very dangerous. I see time is marching on, so I'm not going to go through all the missions, not the 20, but not even the, uh, the eight uh, where I think we face major challenges on the basis of what I've just said. I will just uh, mention them and maybe in the question and answer period when uh, we can uh, address those situations. I'm worried about the whole Horn of Africa where we, have no less, we are involved in no less than four missions. UNAMID in Darfur, <coughs> UNMIS in uh, Sudan, I mean the, in the, in the north, to address the north-south issue in uh, Sudan. Uh, so two missions in Sudan. Uh, we have uh, UNMI, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and we have MINURKAT in Chad. I'm worried for the Horn of Africa because I, I think there, I mean, uh, the, yeah, there is a solid, there is a foundation of the comprehensive peace agreement in in Sudan. Uh, there is a foundation of the agreement that was reached between Ethiopia and, and Eritrea in Algiers uh, in 2000. But agreements need to be nurtured and uh, implemented and move forward. And there are risks uh, there. And when I look at the whole continent of Africa, as I said, I think there's been real progress in West Africa. I think there is some progress. In Central Africa, in the Great Lakes, I have some concerns on the Horn of Africa. And I have concerns in four other missions. Uh, of course, Afghanistan, where there is a, a general recognition that there has to be a new beginning, a renewed effort, a renewed commitment of the international community. 
have concerns in uh, uh, Lebanon because uh, UNIFIL is doing a, a fine job, but uh, and it's a traditional mission where the military deployment is separate from the political uh, process. Uh, it doesn't. It hasn't adopted the integrated. Uh, model that we now uh, favor and I think is effective. Uh, but uh, Lebanon, uh, the success of UNIFIL is ultimately uh, dependent on the uh, political context uh, there. And uh, of course, I mentioned Kosovo and, uh, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that's the eighth I would mention, where we have made real progress, but nothing is completely irreversible. And uh, I have to work hard and keep the commitment of the international community. So there are serious questions. I mean, I, I haven't mentioned uh, situations like Iraq because they're not uh, under my responsibility at the Department of Peacekeeping uh, Operations. But for those 20 missions which are directly under the responsibility of the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, eight uh, flashpoints are at least uh, five too many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, it's too much, and it's dangerous. And, and you can have surprises in missions that I haven't mentioned. Uh, so it is a risky situation, and it's a risky situation for the international community, which has put so much uh, in the UN, which has put so much in UN peacekeeping. Because there's one thing I'm very well aware of, and uh, maybe I should uh, conclude uh, on, on that point. That is, it has required enormous, an enormous collective effort from the Security Council, from the Secretariat, from the member states which have provided the troops uh, and the resource and the political resource to make the progress we have made in the last seven, eight years, to rebuild uh, a credibility that had been uh, destroyed by the uh, tragedies uh, of the 90s. I know that it is enough of one big, one big failure is, would be enough uh, to destroy uh, that uh, credibility. And so we can't afford uh, that failure. And I, when I say we, I'm not talking about the Secretariat. I'm talking about all of us, the member states, the international community. Because... And that's a danger of the United Nations. That's its, that's its opportunity and that's its, the, the risk it incurs. The United Nations is nothing more, nothing less than what the member states put in it. Sometimes there's a sense that the uh, United Nations is that organization out there that you, where you can pass the buck if, something, uh, if you don't know how to deal with, some, with something. That's a dangerous approach because if you pass the buck uh, too much, and then there is a big failure, you lose the instrument. Uh, you lose the credibility of the instrument. And so for the member states, which have seen in recent years how the United Nations can effectively address situations that may not be at the top of the strategic agenda, but that involve the lives of millions and millions of people, uh, that also have a strategic importance because if you let a vacuum develop in a country, it can come back to haunt us and become a strategic threat. So for all those countries, and the U.S. is one of them, uh, that have uh, uh, recognized uh, the importance of having an organization that can address uh, those situations, uh, 
the instruments need to be protected. Uh, the instrument needs to be used wisely, because if it is not used wisely, at some point it may break. And if it breaks, it will take years to rebuild. Thank you. Well, first, uh, let me thank you on behalf of all of us for that wonderful presentation about not only the eight years of progress, which you had a great deal to do with, but also the types of missions that will continue to plague the UN and the international community because of their difficulty and because of the absence of roadmaps that we have to solve them. But let me just put you in the prerogative, my prerogative of the chair, in a little bit of a position. Uh, you've been at the UN for eight years, having done a wonderful job in bringing peace operation forward. What would be the piece of advice you would leave for your successor in how to make this very important tool, not only for US power, but for all the nations of the UN, even more effective? And what would, would there be one particular type of reform that you would like to see that has yet not been achieved, but would make the difference in ending the fragility of this most important operation? <laughs> Well, it's uh, peacekeeping. It's a continuous work in uh, work, work in progress. I think we need to further strengthen uh, our military component on the one hand, and uh, there are ideas in the, on the table uh, to to do precisely uh, precisely that. I think, on the other hand, we need to maximize what I think is one critical comparative advantage of the United Nations is the integration. In the, in the UN, there is a Department of Peacekeeping Operation that integrates for the peace, peace operation, the, the political strategy, and the military uh, deployment and the civilian uh, strategy. I think that's, that's essential. I think it's essentially a good setup, which is quite different from what you would have in a national context. So you'd have a Ministry of Defense, you'd have a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you'd have, well, of course, they all report to Prime Minister or to President, but it's a different setup. I think that setup of the UN with, on the ground, an, a special representative who integrates the military effort uh, and the political strategy, a civilian that integrates, I think that's, that's fundamentally sound. But in terms of reforms, I think we could do much better in integrating the peace building with the peacekeeping in our operations. Uh, I think that the... Uh, the, the United Nations funds and programs, the, uh, and generally speaking, the, the, the bilateral donors, all that is, is far from well integrated. And that's, uh, that's a real issue where we could do, we could do better. Now, you will have a lot of work, my, my successor. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, why don't we take some questions? Uh, when you are called upon, there is a microphone, and if you would uh, state your name. Uh, let me start over here. Uh, the gentleman in the uh, back, his hand up. Thank you. Hi, Doug Brooks with the uh, International Peace Operations Association. Uh, my question is, uh, Canada used to provide a lot of the, um, the sort of Western uh, uh, peacekeepers that did participate in uh, peacekeeping operations, and they've sort of uh, got busy in, in Afghanistan, so they don't put as many troops in the field. Is there any other Western nation that is putting troops in the field to do peacekeeping operations, or do you see any on the horizon? Do you see the Germans? Uh, who have a, a fairly large Western military uh, participating more in peace operations, and you see, see more of them on the horizon? 
Well, I mean, the, there was a significant uh, change when uh, UNIFIL, when our mission in Lebanon uh, deployed, with a significant contingent from a number of European uh, countries, like Italy, Spain, uh, France, Poland. And there, was, there was a series of, uh, of um, in, uh, European countries that deployed with blue helmets in Lebanon. Actually, Germany uh, got involved on the naval side in uh, in, in Lebanon, within the, in, the ta in the naval task force that we have under UN command in Lebanon. But uh, European uh, boots on the ground in Africa uh, under the UN flag, uh, we are not quite there yet. We have the deployments of the uh, European mission uh, in Chad, uh, the U4, which, you know, which follows on other uh, European missions that have been uh, deployed in Africa, and we had some uh, very I mean, useful contribution from Europe in the Democratic Republic of the, of the Congo, on two, two occasions. Um, I hope that down the road we will see more Europeans under the UN flag, because it's not, it would not be politically a healthy situation if systematically some countries deploy under one flag but don't deploy under the, the UN uh, flag. I mean, we have seen European countries like Ireland, like uh, Sweden, uh, eager to deploy on the, on the UN flag, and they have done, uh, done it on um, several occasions. Uh, I think we, s we need to see uh, more of that. And uh, the strengthening of our military structures may be a way to facilitate that. At the same time, I don't think that as we do that, we should completely emulate the, the military structures that uh, the EU has developed or that NATO has developed, because I'm not sure that they are always uh, attuned to what is needed for a peacekeeping operation. Uh, Mark Esquina with the State Department, uh, the Office for Reconstruction and Stabilization. Um, of the really problematic missions that you, you mentioned, uh, I was really struck by Unimis, uh, uh, Unimid rather, in Darfur, and I was looking at the factors again that you had said uh, were particularly challenging. And, and there it seems to me you, you have a combination. You obviously uh, have problems with the material resources. Uh, I think there's probably a question with the political will of the international community, and finally the, the issue of dealing with the regime in Sudan. And I'd be curious in your, your thoughts, I mean, as, as you look at UNIMIS, which seems particularly fragile and problematic right now, um, how you evaluate those factors and what you see as possible sort of steps forward uh, in providing the sort of robust uh, presence on, on the ground that's needed in Darfur. Well, I think in UNAMID it's a good illustration of and the need both to have the material resources but also not to <coughs> ignore the politics uh, of the mission. Uh, in, in some ways, a single-minded focus on the, uh, on the deployment of the force I mean, would miss the central point. Yes, we are great difficulties deploying the mission for a variety of, uh, of reasons. I mean, uh, troop contributors are not uh, rushing uh, to, uh, to Darfur. And the troop contributors that uh, have been selected uh, for the mission do not have the self-sustainment capabilities that, for instance, the European troops that deployed in Lebanon very quickly have. And so that inevitably I mean, delays uh, the deployment, plus the well-known issues that we are missing some critical uh, capabilities. So there are all the material issues of the deployment, but there is the, the more fundamental issue is what 
peace is there to keep. What is the agreement? I mean, there was a, a great effort with the Darfur peace agreement. Unfortunately, that Darfur peace agreement does not have the, uh, the broad-based uh, support that uh, people who supported the signature of that agreement uh, expected it would have. Uh, and so today, there's a big question on whether a, a solid political base uh, for, the, for a peace in Darfur can be, can be uh, developed. Uh, and that requires efforts on many fronts, uh, frankly. And, uh, the government of Sudan to have uh, a unified view uh, between the National Congress Party, the SPLM, uh, Miniminawi and SLA, uh, and on the rebel uh, fronts where we see increased uh, fragmentation. And so the commitment to a political process is uncertain. We have seen offensive of the rebels. We have seen offensives of the, uh, of the government of Sudan. We have seen a high tempo of uh, military activities in uh, Darfur. It is not uh, a good context to deploy a peacekeeping uh, operation. And so I think for the international community, if one wants to make progress in Darfur, there has to be a solid understanding by all the parties that the political process is their best option. It's not just one option among a range of tools that they can use to pursue their, their, their goals. How does the international community convey that message to all the actors in Darfur? Well, that requires a united international community. So in a way, Darfur encapsulates most of the challenges that I have uh, described in my opening remarks. Uh, my name is Amir Osman. I'm with Safe Darfur Coalition. Just following on what you have mentioned, what would be the implication of the failure to deploy a unit on the region, the Horn of Africa region, and the rest of Sudan? Well, when I say I'm, uh, I'm worried about the Horn of Africa, what I mean is that I think in the absence of resolution of the, the conflicts that we, we see in the, in, in the Horn, eventually it's the control of uh, uh, recognized legitimate authorities uh, that is, uh, that is a challenge. So the consequences of absence of progress in the deployment combined with the absence of progress in the political process, because I, come, oh, I always come back to that, means that the situation might become more and more difficult and in a way more and more intractable, which means more suffering for the people and which means hard and more difficult to find a solution, a political solution. That's what we have seen in Somalia, where now I mean, for a long period of time there has been a very... I mean, uh, impossibility to reach an agreement where, where that would commit all those who hold uh, guns. And the uh, main victims of that situation have been indeed the, the people of, uh, of Somalia. I mean, I wouldn't want that uh, to, to happen uh, in, a, in a place like uh, Darfur, where there's already so much suffering. Rima Mari, would you agree that the political context that peacekeeping operations operate in in the Middle East are more challenging than other parts of the world, especially given that the U.S. fits so much of the bill and they're, they're, perhaps the U.N. is losing its comparative advantage in the sense that it is seen as a tool 
for implementing U.S. objectives in the region. To what extent would you agree with this statement? And do you think that is, it is by coincidence that the Lebanese, um, uni that the UNIFIL forces ended up having Europeans, um, to perhaps to counterbalance uh, the influence of the U.S. in that part of the region? Well, what, what I would say is that the UN has the greatest chance of success when the, uh, the major powers of the world are interested, but at the same time when it's not a fundamental strategic interest. So that there is no polarization uh, and a real consensus uh, can be built. The challenge of the Middle East is that indeed it's a very polarized situation where it's, uh, it's much harder to, to build uh, that, uh, that consensus. And uh, in the Middle East, as in any mission, if there is not, as saying in my opening remarks, if, if there is not a solid common strategy, uh, then there is a danger. The Europeans got involved in, uh, in Lebanon. Well, of course, when they saw that as part, I mean, uh, the Middle East is uh, right next door to Europe. There is a, a great sense, uh, I think, of urgency in Europe that uh, deterioration uh, of the situation in, in the Middle East is extremely dangerous for fundamental uh, European interests. So I think there is a, when it, it is a positive uh, decision to have that involvement of Europe. I think now what is essential is to, to recognize that deploying troops is, opens a window, uh, but uh, that there has to be then uh, a political uh, process that takes advantage of the window uh, that has been opened. Otherwise, the situation can become quite dangerous. Uh, Tulane University. Uh, you <coughs> mentioned Congo a lot of time, and I, I know the UN has been there twice in the 60s, and now the UN is there. And we let people always tie the conflict to the exploitation of natural resources. You talk about the military and the political, but I didn't hear you talking about the setting some transparency in the exploitation of natural resources as part of the peacekeeping. Well, you, you're right that when one looks at the map of conflicts, I mean, conflicts need to be fed, so to speak. And, uh, and uh, the map of natural resources not always, because I don't want to be deterministic uh, there, but it's in some cases, the existence of natural resources uh, helps militias, helps various actors uh, fund uh, themselves, and uh, so can be part of the conflict. <coughs> when we deploy in a place where there are natural resources, and uh, there are a number of places where we are deployed with the natural resources, Liberia is a case in, uh, in point. Uh, they are significant, uh, I mean, it's a smaller country, much smaller than the Democratic Republic of the Congo, obviously, but there are, uh, there are serious natural resources uh, there. I mean, it's been quite a good experience to see how, in partnership with the authorities of uh, Liberia, and working also with the uh, U.S. government, with the European uh, Union, uh, uh, with the World Bank, uh, we've been able to develop uh, mechanisms that are entirely I mean, uh, supported uh, by uh, Liberia to consolidate good governance uh, in Liberia so that those resources that exist in Liberia would be uh, used for the benefit 
of the people of Liberia. I mean, this should always be part of an integrated uh, strategy. But it cannot be dictated uh, from the outside. It, had the, it has to be I mean, the result of an engagement between the international community and the country where we are deployed, where the country where we are deployed comes to the conclusion that this improvement in good governance is a, is a fundamental pillar of a sustainable peace. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Mindy Reiser from the United Nations Association of the National Capital Area. And my question has to do with civilian engagement in the peacekeeping missions. I wonder if you could reflect after your many years now uh, on the job, what worked best and what didn't work very well in involving civilians? I know there have been problems finding police and certainly uh, other people with skills that are relevant. What can be done better and uh, what would you advise uh, going forward? Well, the civilians, they are, at, they are not the most visible part of a peacekeeping operation, one thinks first of the blue helmets, but they are a key central element of a successful strategy. The, the head of the mission in our integrated mission is a civilian, and that's how it, uh, it should be, and is supported by, um, by thousands sometimes of civilian uh, personnel. I mean, uh, in, uh, when I consolidate the numbers in our peacekeeping operation, we have more than uh, 20,000 uh, civilians, of which is roughly 5,000 international uh, civilians. So a considerable number. How can they do the best possible job? I'll start from the top, from the special representative uh, himself or herself. Unfortunately, too many times himself, but we are making some progress so that there are more uh, female uh, special representative. What can the special representative uh, do best. I think it's finding the right balance between not being a bully and at the same time not being irrelevant. Uh, I, mean, I use a double negative, I should find another way to say it, but a, a special representative, the head of a civilian effort. And I start from the top because in a way it's a job description of every member of a peacekeeping operation. You are there in a country that is not yours, uh, where you will, that you will leave. So you have to start with a, a lot of humility. Uh, because if you come with a sense that uh, you are the new colonial power, we're not in a colonial age, and, the, the, and we shouldn't be. Uh, and the flag of the UN, in, if it becomes a colonial flag, is no more legitimate than any national flag. So you have to start from a position of, of humility and of listening. And at the same time, you have to do more, of course, than to listen. Uh, you have to be able to push, to convince, uh, and that requires uh, a lot of intelligence and some uh, training. As we develop uh, multidimensional peacekeeping, we need to do much more in terms of uh, training. You mentioned the police. Uh, to be a good police officer in a peacekeeping operation is much more than to be a good police officer in one's home country. Because you can be a good police officer on the beat uh, in, uh, in Paris or New York or Washington, that's fine. Uh, but to be a good police officer in a country that is not yours, where you're going to have to transfer knowledge, where, you have to, where you're going to have to exercise that mix of humility and, and strength with people who are not your compatriots, that's enormously difficult. And you also will have to have in mind organizational issues that uh, you don't necessarily uh, possess because you inherit structures when you're in your own country. You inherit functioning structures. 
while there you will have to create them, to help create them. And you will not be the one creating them, you will have to help people who are not, uh, and that's not you, uh, get convinced that they have to create those uh, structures. I think we, we throw police officers in very difficult jobs without preparing them enough. And what I say uh, of police officers, I could say of many of our uh, civilian uh, capabilities, where we need, it's one thing to be an expert. Uh, we don't have the right middle between the operator who does the, the job uh, and the person who does a report on what needs to be done. What is difficult is the intermediate level, where you do a bit of the job to, to, to share your experience, but at the same time where you have a, a certain sense of the system uh, that you are building. And that intermediate level, I think nobody gets it really right. I think the, the closest probably to a right approach was when what uh, uh, the EU did with the accessing uh, countries uh, uh, in Central uh, Europe, uh, where there, there was a major effort to, to help uh, those countries uh, prepare themselves for integration into the, the European Union. But those countries were, I mean, their starting point was infinitely higher than uh, the starting point of I mean, countries broken by conflict in which uh, we are deployed. But generally speaking, I think this is something that the international community is not good at and where much more needs to be done today. We have about 10, 15 minutes left. Maybe what I'd like to do is just take a few more questions um, and then we can go from there. Uh, that gentleman, we want to start over there and we'll just go around. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Andrew Solomon from the American Society of International Law. And my question has to do with rule of law promotion and justice sector, justice system reform, which many UN personnel in peacekeeping operations find themselves working on, mm -hmm. whether as part of a mandate or not part of a mandate. <coughs> my question really has to deal with, should there be more emphasis in uh, integrating reference to those types of activities into mandates? Uh, is that too specific? Uh, and then also, who, if anyone, should have the lead within the many different UN agencies in that area of work? I'm going to take um, a few more questions. Lady over here. Avram with Voice of America. Uh, UN peacekeeping forces are in uh, Cyprus for a long time now. And I was wondering, um, how, do you, how do you see the future of the peacekeeping force in Cyprus? And do you think they're still needed there? And do you think should there, should there be a time limit to peacekeeping forces operations in general? Okay. Um, Pat? Uh, Patricia Thayden, University. Um, one of the debates among the peacekeeping operations When is it there too long? Obviously, resources are a key element there. When donors, with, when, uh, when governments withdraw the resources, the peacekeepers need the peacekeepers tend to go. But I wonder if you can reflect <coughs> on how the debate is going. And, and since you started off talking about lessons learned, what are the lessons you've learned from past experience of That's a whole day's worth of <laughs> um, This gentleman here, um, and I think yes, you may uh, have. My name is Chip a um, two-week trip out to uh, Burundi and Rwanda where we held a, um, uh, a peace support operations lessons learned workshop with 18 of our ACODA troop contributing countries. 
And many things that came out of that we'll be putting into a report in about two weeks, which we can share with your office uh, up in New York. But one thing that came clear and they asked me to um, uh, inquire about, and today was a fortunate um, uh, event. I just got back, as I said, this morning. But many of the African countries uh, who want to volunteer for Darfur or any of the other UN peacekeeping operations in Africa are unclear on the manner in which they need to volunteer and apply and approach the UN uh, DPKO to follow up this process. My question to you, is there a, um, an SOP or a guide that we could distribute to those uh, troop contributing countries um, or perhaps develop a, a short list for them? Because I think you would have no shortage of volunteers for Darfur uh, and other places. Equipment's another question, but in terms of peacekeepers, uh, the numbers are there, sir. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to cut off the questions and give our speaker the last word. So um, with those, uh, thank you. Yeah, first question on the, on the rule of law. I mean, if there's something we have learned, I think, from the, from the past experience, is the importance of integrating our efforts on security, in particular police, in a broader context. If you, if you train police officers, but there is no judiciary, there is no corrections, uh, uh, it doesn't make sense. And so you do need an integrated uh, effort uh, there which is not easy because, of course, I mean, the judiciary in particular, it's really at the core of the sovereignty of a state. Uh, and, for instance, in Haiti, we are working with the uh, Haitian uh, authorities to, to strengthen uh, the, the judiciary, but it's, it's, a major, it's a major challenge. Who should have uh, the lead on that? I think it's uh, what is important is to, to mobilize resources because, frankly, Often I see uh, discussions on who should do what, what, when what strikes me is that basically there's not enough uh, resource. And it's uh, basically people are fighting for what is, uh, what, what they should just try to mobilize more uh, resources. There is a great gap between what is needed and what is, what is uh, available. I think it's very important to have an operational approach to it so as to be able to deploy the kind of people that I was describing when I answered the question on the police that have that uh, experience in the judiciary and the correction, but also have the capacity to, to, re -op to really operationalize it in a post-conflict uh, situation. Uh, Cyprus, well, I think we, hopefully, we may, we may be at a time where things could move in uh, Cyprus. I and mean, there are two leaders uh, who have met uh, and, uh, in a very positive uh, spirit. Uh, there is now hope that what is, uh, I mean, don't, let's not forget that uh, Cyprus is one of the last cities in the world, the last city in the world to be uh, divided. Uh, there is hope that the crossing is going to be open uh, there. It's a symbolic event, but it's a symbolic event which would have major uh, which will reverberate uh, p politically. Uh, and so Cyprus, we have been there, of course, much, much too long. Cyprus makes the point that a peacekeeping operation, indeed, it prevents the resumption of war. And that is priceless, because one day of war I mean, is very costly. <laughs> and uh, in financial terms, and more importantly, in, uh, in human terms. 
But the peacekeeping operation doesn't by itself bring peace. It brings the absence of war, but it's halfway station. Uh, and uh, you need then to have an a political engagement uh, to resolve the issues. Maybe today in Cyprus there is that possibility and it should be seized upon. The time frame, which brings me to the question on the time frame of peacekeeping operations. I don't think that you can have a kind of a mechanical answer to that, uh, to that question. Because again, you see, there, there are frozen conflicts. I mean, uh, Cyprus was one for many years. Hopefully now it is unfreezing and there is a, a real hope of, uh, of movement. There are other conflicts that uh, are frozen, like the Western Sahara conflict, for instance. Uh, does that mean that uh, a mission should be pulled out? Frankly, I think that uh, even if a mission does not achieve a peace, uh, if there is no uh, resolution, uh, political resolution, one should think twice before pulling out a mission and make sure that it does not increase the risk of war. But at the end of the day, it's a decision of the parties. Um, the time frame for multidimensional uh, missions. There, I think we have to recognize that the quick in, quick out is just unrealistic. And we have to be frank about it. And I think the Security Council, when it decides to open uh, a mission, uh, should be aware that, I mean, it should analyze the situation. And if it makes a commitment, should be prepared to stay the course. Uh, and that's the case in places like Haiti. As a place, that's the cases in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You cannot cut and run. You have to stay the course because in a country that has been broken, devastated, it, you're not going to be able to uh, help the state rebuild the basic uh, structures very quickly. It requires a serious, consistent effort. Now, what is the shape of the international presence? That can be and should be continuously adjusted. Uh, and uh, as soon as possible, the military dimension of the presence should go down because no force can uh, remain in a country because be, be long, for long be, without being seen at some point as an occupation uh, <coughs> force. And so I think we have to be very careful of trying to get out on the military side as, as soon as we can, and that's where the importance of building the security sector is essential. Because there are places if we pull out, the, the security sector is just not there to, to uh, provide the the basics of peace that are, that are needed. So we have to focus from day one on the reform of security sector so as to be able to downsize the military presence as quickly as possible and at the same time be ready to have a longer term presence and other aspects of the peacekeeping effort. African uh, uh, countries, uh, I think it's, I mean, uh, the African missions at the United Nations, they know that when, when, whenever there's a peacekeeping mission, we, we notify all the countries of the world, actually, uh, of what is uh, required. Uh, we conduct uh, briefings uh, for I mean, uh, those uh, countries where we explain the details. Where I would disagree with you is that for each mission, we don't want to throw troops at a problem that are not that do not have the training, the equipment, the self-sustainment that will allow them to face the problem. 
I think it's not uh, doing a service to troop contributors to accept contribution from troop contributors which will not have the capacity to sustain themselves effectively and which will, be, uh, uh, which will not have the capacity to deliver in a very difficult, dangerous environment. Nobody will win from that. The mission will not win and uh, the true contributor will not win because it's, it's people, uh, it's soldiers will be put in harm's way and will not be in a position uh, to, to make a difference and may suffer casualties as we have, as has been the case actually in places where I mean, uh, troops were deployed that did not have the sufficient equipment and, and capacity. So I think our duty is to have with the troop contributors a totally honest dialogue uh, to tell them what the challenges are, to explain them in no unclear terms, to inspect them, that's what we do, and if we see that they do not have the capacities, then find another troop contributor. Under Secretary General Gaheno, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you here this afternoon. Let's thank you.